Hey guys, Hewitt Tomlin here, co-founder at Team Builder. And, uh, you know, rather than talk about Team Builder in this intro, I just want to recognize the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for winning the Super Bowl. I think in a previous episode, I congratulated them on their NFC Championship. Uh, but this time they won the big thing. So for everyone who keeps up with American football, the Kansas City Chiefs were by far a favorite in that game. And uh, the Bucks really, you know, really dominated. It was one of the most dominating Super Bowls I've ever seen in my life. Uh, so big congrats to Coach Paroli and the strength staff there. Really proud of them. This is actually the first time a, a team has gone as far as winning a division title, but also winning a Super Bowl uh, that also uses team builders. So really proud of those guys. Today's guest, I, I can't believe I got to interview him, but it's Joel Jamison. Um, I don't know where to even begin when it comes to introducing Joel, but I guess we could just sum it up to say that he's like the, uh, the authority on conditioning. You know, he's a strength coach by trade. He's trained a lot of professional athletes, um, but he is also uh, the foremost mind in taking research on heart rate variability, HRV, and conditioning and, um, you know, explaining how it transfers to competition and sport. So, um, you know, the thing with Joel is if we took any one of these many topics and drilled down on them, we could spend hours talking about them. My goal for the podcast was kind of to take away some big concepts from him and just kind of see where he put his emphasis. And I, I was really surprised at how much emphasis he put on sleep. I mean, like he has a lot of expertise in a lot of areas, but he kept talking about sleep. Um, he really wanted to shut up about it and just makes you think like we all know it's important, eight hours of sleep. We know that sleep hygiene is important, but he really bangs at home about how sleep affects uh, HRV and you know these key performance indicators that we use for performance. Um, so yeah, enjoy the the talk with Joel. We even have this funny part where we have something in common that we found out on the podcast, which I would never have expected in a million years. It was really crazy. Uh, but yeah, Joel Jameson. Cool. Uh, Joel, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Good man. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, for everyone listening, Joel is taking this podcast call out of Hawaii. I'm in Breckenridge. I'm getting two feet of snow right now. And what's the weather like where you are, Joel? Uh, you know, it's about 78 to 82 almost <laughs> every single day here. So I, I got no complaints. The big the big complaint is that it rains for like five minutes and clears back up. Yeah, that's not too big of a deal. We're, we're you know, each of us are in our own paradise. Paradise is in the eye of the beholder. We're, we're both where we need to be. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I, when I was younger, I probably would have been more towards where I, I did a lot of skiing and spent a lot of time up in the mountains, but I don't know what it is about getting older. You just like being cold less and less. So I think it's unfortunate. It just kind of says I'm getting old these days, but I like the beach more than the mountains, unfortunately, this time yeah. of my life. Well, maybe the, you know, the blood gets thinner. Who knows what it is, but you'll be in yeah. Phoenix if you, if you, if you don't watch out, you'll be in Phoenix in the, in the retirement yeah, community if you keep. I'm not, yeah, I'm not going that, I'm not that old yet. So I like <laughs> the, the, North, the, the North Shore is my, my uh, preferred spot up on uh hawaii north north of oahu where all the the surfing happens it's a it's a great spot nice nice i've never been to to hawaii are you doing any speed training in the sand is that is that part of your protocol no i'm more like speed walking in the sand for my <laughs> my, morning, my morning walks and then they do a lot of biking and some running on the, the trails around here but uh the, the sand i did the sand running it's hard on you man it's it's hard you think but uh surfing and just kind of living the relaxed lifestyles is uh, what this place is all about yeah, that's sweet, man. So when I was a teenager, you know, I think my dad, who knows where he got this from, but he was like, you know, he came to me, I was like 15. He was like sand training. 
this is what makes you faster. We got to get some sand <laughs> training going. So is that, is that an old myth? We're going to get into myth busting here in a little bit. Yeah, there's, there's definitely uh your, your, first of all, your running form changes significantly in the sand, obviously, and what you're running on flat ground. Anytime you change your mechanics, the, the carryover into normal land training's uh, not quite what people think it is. And like I said, it's also pretty hard in your body. It's, it definitely takes some work to build up to the, the stress of running the sand just because you spend so much more time on the ground. The ground contact time is so much harder. The stress uh, can be hard if you're doing a lot of sand sprinting. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, let me put it this way. I don't think you're saying bolts run a whole lot of time in the sand. So, yeah, I don't think it's a yeah. huge speed secret. Yeah, you always notice that the arches of your feet and the front of your calves are really sore after running in the sand. And yeah, they are. people probably interpret that as, man, I got a good workout, right? You know, I got exposed to some sort of stress that I don't get on dry land. This must really be working. That's, that's kind of like a small anecdote into to HRV, right? How do we know whether, you know, work, the work that we're putting in is good work or bad work? That's kind of where HRV comes in, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it. It's always a question, right? Is just becomes, I think we have a very easy and intuitive idea that if something's hard or we're, we're sore, it must mean it's good for us. But that's, you know, unfortunately, that's just not always the way it works out just because something's tiring or something's challenging in a new way. That doesn't always necessarily mean like, oh, I'm all of a sudden going to be better at this other thing because this thing was hard. The question is always, you know, was it hard in the right way? Did it actually tax or challenge my body in a way that's going to transfer over into something else that I'm trying to accomplish? So we, we got to kind of move away from the idea that just because something's hard or I suck at it means if I get good at it, it's, it's going to always make me better at what my primary goal is. So you just got to kind of think through uh, yeah. think things a little bit different perspective than that. And relatedly, the converse is true. You could be enduring some internal loads without actually feeling sore or feeling bad at all. Um, that that's probably really where HRV comes in. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And then what HRV really does is kind of gives us a, a compass and like, are we heading in the right direction? Are things uh, adapting the way that we want them to? You know, are we doing too much, too little? You know, it just gives you a, an objective way of measuring progress and seeing are, are things happening the way they should be without having to wait six, eight, 10, 12 weeks to, to see if your performance actually changed your health markers or whatever it is you're tracking got better. It's a much more granular daily type snapshot at, at uh, what's happening internally to, to make sure you're on the right track. So you, it's like if I was going to drive from, from the North Shore to Oahu, I wouldn't want to wander around for three days and figure out if I got there. Like I want to make sure my GPS is telling me I'm on the right road to get there. And that's essentially what HRV can help us do. Yeah. So this, this kind of initiates the, the start of our podcast, getting into the, the subject matter that you're an expert in. Now, I, I have to kind of premise this by saying when it comes to conditioning, HRV, this, you know, this kind of stuff, I'm like a smooth-brained idiot. So I'm you know, kind of nervous going into this podcast. I'm, I'm going to try to ask really good questions and draw some, some good insights. Um, but keeping my audience in mind, um, I'm not going to try to extract these nitty-gritty details um, you know, way down in the science. I'm going to try to, to kind of ask some questions that, that become really relevant to the fundamentals of conditioning and HRV um, so that people who read your stuff and keep up with you can better articulate conveying these concepts to someone like a sports coach or like an admin person. And then, you know, for like a high school coach to kind of, you know, convey these concepts to like a, a head football coach, that's kind of the goal for this. Um, yeah. So with that being said, yeah. So with that being said, I, I wanted to kind of ask the first question as, you know, if you were teaching a master class on, on HRV, which stands for heart rate variability, um, how would you explain and define what HRV is and how would you kind of distill why it's important. Yeah, so I, I 
this my my answer to this question has evolved over the years from when I first introduced an HRV back in like 2000. You know, it was this crazy Russian technology that had been developed for the space program, and there's always technical things I'd get into, and then you kind of look at most people when you get these technical answers, and they look at you with a blank face because it doesn't really make sense to resonate with the average person or coach. So really what, what HRV get, comes down to at its core is is energy, and it's it's really about how the body is managing and distributing energy to do two things. One, which is just keep you alive, and then two is to help you manage the stress that you're putting your body under on a daily basis, whether that's the mental stress of life or the physical stress of training and working out, the body has to make sure that it has the energy it needs to do those things. And the way that it does that is through this thing called the autonomic nervous system. And most people have heard of the central nervous system, right? The central nervous system is what walks you around and fires muscles and all that kind of stuff. Well, the autonomic nervous system is kind of like it sounds. It's automated. Like we don't, we don't think about um, our metabolism. We don't think about all the reactions that happen internally to keep us alive. That's really what the autonomic nervous system is doing. So there's two branches to that system. And most people have heard of these as casual, at least there's what's called the sympathetic system and that's your fight or flight. Okay. So if I'm going to work out or I'm thinking about something that's mentally challenging and I'm doing some sort of demanding task mentally, I need additional energy to do that, right? If I'm going to fight or flight I, or do some hard task or train, I need more energy going to my muscles, more energy going to my brain. I need more energy to do that task. And the job of the sympathetic nervous system is to make sure my body turns up energy production so that I can do that specific task, right? So that's one half, the autonomic nervous system. The other half is the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And that's what people would call the rest and digest, right? Or rest and recover, rest and repair. Its job is to counterbalance to that fight or flight system. Its job is to put energy into recovery, into repair, into digestion, into absorption, and into rebuilding things. So these two systems are always working together in the body, again, without us having to think about it. I don't have to turn on recovery, you know, switch. Like it just happens, right? So those systems are working in the body at all points in time to keep us alive and to make sure that we have the energy we need, whether it's to meet something that's physically or mentally challenging and demanding, or it's to repair ourselves and regenerate after those things are over. So why that's important is because what HRV is doing is giving us a measurement of how active that parasympathetic or that rest and digest system is. It's basically telling us how much energy the body is diverting over to regeneration, repair, recovery, all those sorts of things. And it's doing that by measuring the rhythm of the heart rate because that rhythm of the heart rate changes based on whether or not the sympathetic system is heavily active or based on whether that parasympathetic system is heavily active. Those two systems influence our heart rhythm. And so heart rate variability is measuring your heart rate over a period of time and it's pulling out the rhythm of the heart and how that's changing to basically look at how active that parasympathetic nervous system is. So in other words, it's giving us a snapshot into how much energy and resources your body is devoting towards recovery and repair and regeneration. And the reason it's obviously important is because as we are living our daily lives and we're training and we're sleeping and we're working and dealing with just life in general, our body has to make decisions about where the energy it has goes because we don't have an endless supply of energy. Our metabolism is only capable of generating a certain amount of energy in a 24-hour period, and if we exceed those limits, bad things start to happen. So what we have to realize is that every day our body has to distribute the energy it's capable of generating and it has to make decisions about where the energy goes. Does it go towards dealing with mental stress and then there's not enough left over for training or does it deal with training and there's not enough left over for recovery? All these things are happening under the surface that the body is just doing for us. So in a nutshell, the simplest way to look at HRV is just a measure of 
our body is managing energy effectively and how much energy it's devoting towards recovery. And that's super important. Obviously, if our goal is to improve ourselves over time, we have to put our body under stress and that's going to require energy. And then we have to allow our body to rebuild and repair and regenerate and get better. And that's where energy going towards recovery becomes so important. So it just allows us to measure that balance between stress and recovery and make sure that we're putting our body under enough stress to improve, but not enough stress to too much stress to break. And so it's given us some insight into those processes on a, a daily basis. So we're not waiting until we break to realize we did too much, which is the unfortunate thing that happens. If you have no measuring stick, you have no way to check this. A lot of times, the only way we know for sure that we're doing too much is when we do break, right? We have an injury or our performance decreases or we hit a plateau. You know, those are obvious signs that we we didn't we didn't manage things correctly. But HIV allows us to measure this in a much quicker pace and allows us to make changes much more rapidly so we don't go down that path. So if we take the like the parasympathetic, the parasympathetic statements, it's like the recovery state, some people call it. If you take yep. an example athlete who does not have a healthy parasympathetic state, does that mean that they're inefficient at recovering? Does that mean their body is consuming more energy in order to recover? And is a healthy athlete one that uses less energy during sympathetic states so that more spills over to when they become sympathetic? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of that. It's, it's twofold. I would say somebody whose parasympathetic system is, is less well-developed, let's say, or less efficient, it means they, they, they don't turn it on as strongly. So yes, they don't put as much energy into recovery in general, and they're also less efficient with it, as you said. So it's, it's really twofold. It's how quickly can you turn that recovery state on and how powerfully is that recovery state on when it is on? Um, and, and both of those things change over time and can be improved through training and relaxation. And they're also heavily influenced by nutrition and sleep and all these things play a huge role together. It's really the summation of everything. Your, your parasympathetic state can be influenced by everything that you do from, like I said, how, what kind of foods you eat and uh, how many hours of sleep you get and how you're wired to deal with mental stress. You know, somebody who's a type A personality who can just never relax is going to have a much harder time turning on that parasympathetic state and having that parasympathetic state be effective than somebody who's just better at relaxing and kind of drowning out the noise. So all those things are happening and you typically see, um, you know, with aerobic fitness comes an improvement in all these things. So there's, there's lots of things that you can do that influence this, but yeah, in general, somebody who an athlete or anybody whose overall parasympathetic state is lower, we'd, we'd see you know, lower HRV on average, they're going to have a much harder time recovering from a given workout or a given amount of mental stress. They'll just take a lot longer to recover from it than somebody whose HRV and parasympathetic system is much more well-developed. Um, I've heard you say in the past that HRV is not necessarily meant to be a predictor of peak performance. Uh, optimizing, having some of the optimal HRV doesn't mean that they're going to jump the highest or lift the most weight. Um, it, it, you alluded to something earlier, which is HRV is a compass, and it, it's, it's meant to kind of guide training. Is, is that what you meant? It's not really meant to peak athletes as much as it is just to optimize their training process? Yeah, so we can, we can look at two different perspectives, right? If we look at HRV on a daily basis, like I just measure my HRV today or I measure my HRV tomorrow, it will tell me how much energy my body is devoting towards recovery, like I said. But that doesn't necessarily tell me like what it's capable of on a given day. So just because my energy you know, might not be all the way, you know, one way direction or the other, it's not saying like, oh, well, today your recovery is, is lower, so therefore you can't perform. Because you still have reserves. You still have, uh, you know, more than just one single daily snapshot. So people have this idea that if my HRV is, is low or high or whatever in a given day, that that's going to always mean that I can perform really well. But again, it's that's not really what HRV is doing. It's just feeling going the right direction, the wrong direction. It doesn't mean today 
my performance is going to be significantly different. Where we can look at some performance prediction from HMV standpoint would be like uh, the last 30 days or the last 20 days. We can look at the direction you're going and we can make some predictions about where you're going to perform today versus where you performed 20 days ago or 30 days ago because we can see the direction you're headed. So if I was to look at someone's HRV over 30 days and I was to see a significant decrease, a significant, uh, you know, basically pattern that looks like someone's not recovering very well over 30 days, then yeah, chances are they're not going to perform better today than they did 30 days ago. But if I just take this single day snapshot, it's not enough information to tell me, you know, what direction you're headed. It just tells you here's where you are right now. And that's just not enough information to be able to say, oh, today you're going to perform poorly or today you're... Uh, going to perform really well. That's just not how it works. So we just we can't read too much into a single day if we're talking about performance. We have to look at longer term trends to make better predictions about that. So it's again, it's, these, are, these are all things that are happening internally, and there's so many variables about performance that we can never say one single number or one single metric is going to predict your performance on a given day. The body just got too many. Uh, there's too much going on under the surface that's you know beyond just a single measurement. Based on what you said, it, it kind of sounds like HRV might be a more valuable metric to coaches than to athletes. For instance, I've heard some coaches worry about the mental effects of having an athlete, you know, base their potential, ba- you know, based on metrics that they receive, for instance, HRV or like a recovery score, if you will. Do you have an opinion on, on, on what HRV is, is in terms of value to the coach versus the athlete? Yeah, like, I mean, I think it, it, different athletes and different people process information Differently, and I think a lot of it comes down to educating the athlete. The, the value I see for HRV and these sorts of metrics for athletes is just it reinforces the value of all these things they're doing outside the gym. Because that's the biggest thing I can tell you is athletes and people in general that put a lot of work in the gym are, are willing and capable of doing that, but they tend to not quite understand how much impact everything else has. So they don't quite understand sleep is a massive, massive driver of recovery. Nutrition is a massive driver of recovery. Your ability to tune out stress mentally is a massive driver of recovery. And what I've seen HRV really, really valuable at is helping athletes see that. Because if all of a sudden an athlete doesn't get a good night's sleep and they see their HRV and their recovery score change rapidly, it reinforces, hey, I better get sleep tonight before a big competition because I've seen how important sleep can be and how much it affects my recovery. So I think the value for the athlete is really just understanding all these other things outside the gym are often as big or even a bigger driver of the performance than what's happening in the gym. And if they don't see the metrics, a lot of the athletes just don't necessarily make the connection. Like, oh yeah, I know I need more sleep, but they don't quite understand just how much more they need more sleep and how crucial it is to their performance. So I just think from an accountability standpoint and, and helping athletes see the big picture of this, that's why it's valuable. And then from the coaching standpoint, obviously, if you're talking about a team or a you know, group of athletes, you want to make sure you are headed the right direction. You want that compass. You want that GPS showing you which direction your team is heading. And what I've seen particularly is, you know, over the course of a season, you know, we've done a lot of longitudinal studies with teams across the entire season. And the teams, there's a huge, huge uh, correlation. We've seen the teams that look and take their average kind of team-wide HRVs, the ones that are going down towards the end of the season, they're the teams that just don't perform well. They get a bunch of injuries. They get burnouts. They just fall apart towards the end of the season, the ones that are able to maintain that overall, uh, you know, just kind of call it overall team-wide HRV means that that team is handling the stress of the season well. They're recovering well. They tend to have far fewer injuries. They tend to perform a whole lot better. They tend to be the ones that are making the playoffs and making the late runs. So it gives them a, a very valuable index for that. So I think it's valuable to both, you know, coaches and athletes. The thing is you just have to educate the athletes about what they're looking at. And again, it's not meant to predict how you're going to perform today. It's not meant to predict your injury today. It's just helping you give that compass. And again, it's really showing you the value of, of taking care of yourself outside of the gym. Because again, 
if there's one thing I can tell you, I've seen a lot of athletes do the right things in the gym and do all the wrong things outside the gym without an understanding of just how negatively those things uh, impact them. And as soon as you can start seeing this data and you can start seeing just one night of sleep, you know, one night of six hours of sleep or getting hammered before a competition, right? Like all of these things sabotage your performance so much that you, you don't see it until you start looking at the data. And I've seen it be hugely valuable for those sorts of things, uh, you know, particularly in college and even professional athletes, just all these little lifestyle factors add up to make big differences in performance. And the athletes weren't aware of it until they could actually see the numbers. Is that is that the idea behind the recovery score? From what I understand, like with your your um, your, uh, your product Morpheus, you aggregate data, namely four really important pieces of data, and then you derive a, a recovery score. Is the recovery score just a way to kind of create a more concise measure to the athlete of of, of how they're recovering, how effectively they're recovering? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the thing about HRV, if you really dig into technical uh, spec, which we don't have to. Um, HRV can be up or down. So it can change on a daily basis, meaning it can go down, meaning you have more energy going towards stress, or it can mean up, meaning you have more energy towards recovery. And really, you know, that change can be either up or good, can be down or bad, or it can good or bad. It can, it can mean different things depending on the context. So the big thing is we want to take a, give you a single recovery score that's just a concise overall picture of like should HRV, training, activity, sleep, all the main things that drive your recovery in a way that's very easy uh, you know, to understand. So recovery scores are very easy to understand. Higher recovery is more recovery, lower, lower recovery scores, less recovery versus HRV, which can bounce around a lot more and just needs more context to understand. So it's just an easier picture to look at. What do you think about prescribing recovery? So for instance, I know the Woot Band, I think people like the Woot Band because it has a prescriptive component to it, where if they detect a lot of stress or a lot of load, um, they'll say, hey, you need to sleep X amount, I believe, something to that effect. Do, do you think prescribing uh, sleep, rest, th those kinds of things, is, is that a viable thing to do for uh, a piece of hardware? Well, look, it depends. I think it depends on what we're prescribing. I, I personally, and I've, I've dug in this a lot uh, in the last year or two, sleep is really the cornerstone of recovery because it's, it's where your body is the most parasympathetic. It's where most of recovery is happening because if you're walking around the day you're drinking caffeine you're training you're stressed out all these things are happening uh, throughout your daily life but sleep is where all the pieces of recovery come together and you're able to regenerate yourself the problem with this idea of and, and whoop does do this it gives you varying sleep guidance says you should sleep this time or this time or this amount this amount if you actually dig into sleep research it's really really bad advice because the number one thing for improving your sleep quality and your sleep habits is being very very consistent in your schedule always trying to go to bed roughly around the same time and get up roughly around the same time and trying to sleep roughly the same amount of hours every night because that builds on your body's natural circadian rhythm and it builds better sleep habits within the body and better sleep quality out of that. If you're constantly changing your sleep schedule and you're constantly changing the amount of hours you sleep, it's counter to all the research we have that tells us how important it is to go to sleep and wake up around the same time and get roughly eight and a half hours of sleep uh, you know, or somewhere in that range per night. So I think what they're doing in terms of telling you to sleep more makes sense, sort of. But the reality is you need to be sleeping roughly the same amount. You, know, you need to spend roughly eight and a half hours in bed and try to get at least eight hours of sleep a night. And you need to be as consistent in your schedule as possible. So I take issue with the fact that they're telling people to change the number of hours to sleep. They're trying mm -hmm. to change people what time to go to sleep, what time to wake up. That goes literally, like if you read Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, if you dig into any of the sleep research, if you go to even the, the sleep National Sleep Institute, I mean, literally the number one thing they tell you for sleep quality and for overall sleep habits and for just general good sleep 
uh, practices is, is go to bed and wake up around the same time and get the same amount of sleep every night. So when you're telling people like, oh, it's, you can make for poor recovery by sleeping an extra half an hour, an extra hour, or by changing your, you're, you're screwing people because the reality is it's way harder to be consistent if you're changing your times uh, and changing how many hours you're sleeping. So I just think that side of prescription is totally counterintuitive or totally not counterintuitive, but it's counter to what decades of research is showing us is that you cannot uh, make up for poor sleep or poor recovery by sleeping more the next night. It doesn't work that way. You need to be as consistent in your sleep schedule as you possibly can. Now, where I think we can be prescriptive and where we're, we're starting to head with Morpheus is we can give people ideas of how much intensity and how much volume and those sorts of things are you know appropriate for them in a given day. We can be more prescriptive on the training side because those variables we can change, manipulate without screwing someone's habits up and without uh, you know actually having a detriment on them. So what we want to do with Morpheus and where I think we need to be um, you know aware is if if I'm already lacking recovery, meaning that I'm already devoting a bunch of resources towards recovery. If I overload my body even more, it just means it's going to take even longer for me to recover. If I keep doing that, I keep doing that. That's where I get an I call it recovery deficit. Basically, just means I've overloaded my body with more stress than I have the ability to recover from. If I do yeah. that over a period period of time, let's say a week or two week, three weeks, that's where injuries, that's where overtraining, that's where neg- negative performances start to happen. So we want to be aware of the direction we're heading, which again we can use HRV for, and then just make sure that we're not doing that. When, anytime we want to overload our body, we want to make sure on a weekly basis that we're recovering from it because the biggest thing about uh, stress and recovery is it accumulates over time and that's what causes problems. So most people operate on a weekly schedule, right? So you want to basically be able to overload your body over the course of a week such that by the by the start of the next week, you're not accumulating fatigue. You're not starting from a negative recovery standpoint. Because if you keep doing that for successive weeks, two weeks, three weeks, you never fully recover. That's where you're going to get injuries and negative performances and all these things that are going to happen uh, that'll impact you. So Really, what we're trying to do is make sure just on a weekly basis that we are putting our body under enough stress to improve, but we're still able to recover and kind of start the next week fresh, if that makes sense. It's the accumulation over time, not just one week. It's the accumulation over time that leads to injuries and leads to poor performances, leads to stagnation, all those sorts of things. So we can be prescriptive, I think, on the training side of things. We can be prescriptive on nutritionally. We can be prescriptive in overall activity levels. Um, but I think that the thing about sleep is it's very clear, like you, your sleep requirements are generally pretty static and you generally speaking, want to go to bed and wake up around the same time. So giving people yeah. advice to change that is just bad advice. You know, now that you mention it, it's like, yeah, it seems really convenient for, you know, this watch to tell you how many hours to sleep this tonight. It, it, but it kind of reminds me of like this Western medicine. We're obsessed with remedial medicine cures. And what you're saying is, is that you want the preventative medicine. You want to build a habit of, of solid sleep by going to bed the same time every night, waking up at the same time every day. And then that, that is a long-term preventative strategy as opposed to this typical craving, right? It's like a human condition to like want the cure. You want the, re- the remedy as opposed to paying attention to the preventative measure in the first place. Yeah, and then their problem too is, like I said, the, the proposed uh, remedy in their case can actually screw up their preventative. Yeah. Because like I said, if you're... If you're sleeping in you know an ad hoc amount and you're going to sleep at different times, you were literally screwing up the prevention in the first place, which is just being consistent. And the body opts. So the biggest thing people understand is the body loves consistency because it's predictable. It gets used to things. It is is much more able to cope with that well. What the body struggles more with, or at least is a bigger challenge, the body is is unpredictability and and lack of consistency. When you travel in a different time zone, you get 
uh, you get your sleep gets off because you're in a different area where you're three hours ahead, or you start going and eating new foods, you start a new workout. All of these things are challenges the body to put under more stress and cause it to be you know, uh, less resilient while it's adapting to that stress. So the more consistent you can be with your sleep, the more consistent you can be with your training, the more consistently you can do things, the more habit habitually you can make all this, the better your body is going to perform. And that's been one of the biggest keys, I think, to uh, I've worked with combat athletes for years and years. And one of the biggest things we always found was we wanted to make the training camp feel as, as I mean, for lack of better words, it wanted to be monotonous. Because monotonous, it was consistent. It meant they were, their body was doing the same thing. They were used to eating the same foods, going to sleep at the same time, going to the same routines, the same habits, but it kept them healthy because we didn't introduce all this complex variety and all these different variables are constantly being thrown at them. So mm-hmm. uh, you just have to you just have to look at the way the body operates. It's it operates very efficiently under things it's familiar with and it struggles and takes more energy to adapt to things it's unfamiliar with. So again, going back to sleep, if you can build this sleep pattern, this habit of I go to bed this time, I wake up at this time. That is the best recipe for recovery because your sleep quality will be vastly improved versus trying to change your sleep every night to make up for something you did yesterday. This doesn't work that way. You're actually sabotaging your recovery because your sleep quality will be worse because it wasn't consistent. Yeah. You're putting a lot more emphasis on sleep than I would have expected you to. I mean, I hear all the time being in the coaching world, you've got to get your sleep, you got to get your sleep. So a personal question. How do you approach your own personal sleep hygiene? Would you say that you have a lot of structured habits around the way you sleep? I do, actually, yeah. So the, the reason I, I, I mention sleep so frequently is because, you know, over the years of looking at HIV, it's, it's the biggest thing we've seen that correlates with changing HIV and recovery. And it makes sense. Like I said, if we understand that most of the recovery is happening, the biggest pieces of it, at least, are happening at night. So we can look at two factors. How much stress we expose ourselves is something we control every day. Like we control how much we work out. We control how we react to mental stressful situations and what situations we put ourselves in. We control what foods we eat. So today, the, the daily uh, snapshot is, is, is how much stress we put ourselves under. And then what happens at night is our chance to recover from that, which we control by how much sleep we get and the sleep quality we get. So it has been the biggest thing I've seen correlate to recovery and just HIV as a whole. And so the, and the more I've, I've dug into it, the more it's obvious why. It's because that's when our body is most anabolic for uh, words you know, word that people get is it's anabolic at night. That's when it's happening. Um, so, and we look, we look at two things. I look at a few variables. Like I said, number one is just being consistent and really trying to go to bed and wake up at the same time. That's just an exercise in self-discipline. I mean, sometimes instead of watching the next Netflix episode, you, you have to force yourself to, to relax and go to sleep because you know, it's, it's getting boring. harder and harder these days. The Netflix is. is really stepping up their game. Yeah, Netflix is making it hard. I agree. And they, they, especially the, the series, they tend to have the, the, the cliffhanger at the end of the last episode, the next episode. Damn it, I want to see the next one. And they uh, release but, all the episodes at one time. It's like they're sabotaging yeah, your sleep. They're working against us. They, they really are. But so there's just some self-discipline in, in that aspect of things and, and building up some routines. You know, you know, maybe an hour before bed, I do this and half an hour, I do this and just kind of build into it. Um, but for me, the biggest thing is I've, I've really hammered down and, and been super cognizant of the environment because I've seen that the, the amount of light exposure you get and the noise makes the biggest difference. And so the biggest uh, eye opener for me was I, I bought a cabin years ago up in the mountains uh, outside of Seattle. And I put a bedroom downstairs in this, this room that had no windows and the cabin's kind of middle of the woods. So it's extremely quiet. And just the, the difference in sleep out, out there versus in a more urban environment was just unbelievable to me because when I didn't have light pollution coming in the morning. I didn't have something noise from a neighbor waking me up. I didn't have those things. My sleep quality was just massively, massively different. So it was just a really obvious thing to me that the environment matters tremendously, tremendously. So, you know, if you're in a room that's just bright, you know, anything you can do to darken it with, you know, usually it's shades, right? Usually you can get uh, some kind of 
light blocking shades and you can black out blinds. And, you know, I always do it. Whenever I go to any bedroom, I try to block out the damn room as much as I can because light pollution really screws your sleep up because it's just, it's part of how your body is designed to be awake is when it's light and it's designed to sleep when it's dark. So that's number one. And then the second one is noise. So I, I got stuck in a, a house for a short period of time. I was by a freeway. And so, I mean, I ordered all kinds of acoustic tiles and everything I could possibly find to make the damn room quiet. Um, if you can't do that, you can use like white noise machines and that sort of thing. If you can't darken the blinds, you have no control of that. You can get a face mask. So those things you can do, but I would say the number one and two things are just light and noise and anything you can do to make sure that it's dark and quiet is the place to start and what I always focus on. And then three is just the bed. You know, you really need a comfortable bed. If your bed is uncomfortable, then you're not going to sleep very well. So like when I got, I came to Hawaii renting a house up in North Shore. Bed was not particularly comfortable. The first thing I did is I went to Costco and I bought a mattress topper that was that was going to make it more comfortable for me and, and help me sleep better. So I always invest in those three areas. Make it dark, make it as quiet as you possibly can, and then make it comfortable for you. And that environmental thing, you know, having those things nailed down are really the most important part. And what I focus on, because again, if I go to bed and wake up at the same time, if my room sucks, it's not going to be near the same sleep quality. So mm-hmm. I focus basically on making sure that the room itself is conducive to sleep. And then I make sure that I try and be as consistent and habitually going to bed and waking up, you know, around the same time. So it, you put those two things together. And the third thing I would say that I focus on too, and, and people need to be aware of is caffeine really, caffeine, alcohol really screw your sleep. So, yeah. you know, having any caffeine within four, five, six hours of when you go to bed, or having a you know a glass of wine. I know everyone thinks wine is a great sleep aid because it's too sleepy, but it's a, it's more of a sedative. It's actually terrible for your sleep quality. Um, it's it's not the same quality of sleep as you get without that. So, it's being really diligent about avoiding those things. You know, within four or five six hours of sleep, uh, any caffeine and alcohol is gonna it's gonna have a really big negative effect on your your sleep. Unfortunately, so you know if you, if ninety percent of people if you just focus on those three things, you know number one. Make sure your environment is really conducive to sleep. Your bed's comfortable. It's dark. It's quiet as much as possible. Uh, number two, you're trying to be as consistent as you possibly can. Again, you might, you might, no one's perfect. You're never going to go to bed exactly at the same time and wake up. But as close as you can, at least you should make an effort to do that. And then three, if you just help yourself out by avoiding caffeine and alcohol within the hours mm-hmm. of the bed, you know, those those three things I can tell you will improve people's recovery more than just about anything else, uh, you know, that I can tell you that they, they make a huge difference because they just sleep is so crucial to it. And if you're not getting it, you're just not going to get recovery. It's just what it comes down to. I can personally attest to the uh, face mask. I can't believe I'm talking about face masks with Joel Jameson on my podcast. Um, <laughs> it, works. It, it, it's, it works so much. And it, it's actually my wife's left to it. Like she had a face mask that was all tattered. And I wasn't wearing one. I thought that was silly. And then she got a new one. I started using her old one just to try it out. And now, I, you know, it's not like I can't sleep without it. But I do notice a difference. The second thing yeah. I, I can attest to is alcohol. You're right. Alcohol is a sedative. It makes you think like it could help you go to sleep faster. Every time you wake up, even, you know, I'm getting a little bit older, so I can tell the effects are getting more like acute the older I get. You know, one or two beers, I don't wake up with as much pep in my step as if I didn't have it. Um, yeah. It, it's kind of, it can become a vicious cycle. If you come home from a long ass day, working, training, whatever. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, for some people, alcohol is really the thing that kind of relaxes them. Um, but like you said, it, it's, it's a pretty big part of you know, why you may not be getting good sleep at night. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it, it feels relaxing. So you think, oh, it's relaxing me. It's going to help me. I'm going to have a glass of wine with dinner before I go to bed or whatever. But I've looked at HRV over and over again. HRV typically drops for two to three hours after you have a glass of wine because it is a bit of a mm-hmm. sympathetic stimulant. Your heart rate goes up. It is, it is not having the effect that you think it is. 
And you know, like you say, it can be it can be helpful from a mental relaxation standpoint, but it's actually hurting your recovery in the long run to be doing that. So trying to think of ways, you know, some something non-alcoholic or having it further away from bedtime or whatever, yeah. uh, having less of it, whatever, whatever you need to do, you can mitigate that to some extent. Um, but yeah, all of those things you know make a big difference. And when I first I started looking at face masks, like I was sleeping, I was in a house where I just could not get the damn room dark. So I went to Amazon, I ordered like six different face masks, and I found the most comfortable one because they're like ten bucks, they're dirt cheap. Um, mm-hmm. And I found the most com- comfortable one and stuck with it because, uh, you know, it's it's the, literally it's it's ten dollars. It can have an impact in your recovery that's significant. It's it's a it's a little thing that can make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, I recommend face masks for everyone. Um, so we'll switch gears here to talk to more about the uh, practicability, the practice of coaching. Um, I took a trip to Phoenix, which I do every year to visit some MLB teams that use Team Builder, and the Arizona Diamondbacks came to me and said, "Hey, you know, um, we want a program." Uh, conditioning at the team builder kind of the way Joel Jameson has been teaching how to do it. And, you know, when we built team builder, we built conditioning, like, you know, coaches conditioned us, you know, way back in the day and still do, which is, you know, you sprint this long or this much and uh, you rest for a certain amount of time. It was time-based rest recovery ratios. Um, And they said, Hey, we want to start uh, programming conditioning using heart rate um, so that they resume a sprint when they, you know, heart rate has a certain level instead. And this is a very new concept to me. And, you know, immediately I thought, okay, well, this is an effort to individualize conditioning, right? You're giving people rest uh, uh, protocols based on their personal, you know, a, a personal uh, uh, indicator. Um, is that all there is to it? Or, or, or what? what is it to prescribing conditioning based on heart rate as opposed to rest time? And is it as black as white for you as to say that you always prescribe conditioning based on heart rate, or do you also use time-based rest recovery? Uh, so I, look, I, I mean, I use for as far as prescription, I use these both uh, you know, heart rates. So really, what are we talking about? Heart rate itself is just a measure of intensity, right? It's it's the equivalent of how much weight's on the bar when you're lifting. So if I sprint up to a certain heart rate, then that's a certain amount of energy I had to produce, and a certain uh, stress energy system. So in other words, higher heart rates is just more intensity and lower heart rates is less intensity. The same way if I did a three rep max, that's more intensity than if I did a 10 rep max. So heart rate during the ex- during the exercise is just a measure of intensity. So if we're trying to achieve different things, we use different intensities. Just like sometimes I'm doing a heavy you know, three rep or five rep max and I'm lifting. Sometimes I'm doing 10, 15, 12 reps and using higher reps for different purposes. So uh, when we're talking about the actual method, I, I use different intensities. So I'll have people go up to different heart rates for different purposes. And then we're talking about the rest intervals. It's the same thing. Sometimes I want to rest longer to build more power, more repeatability. Sometimes I want to rest shorter to build more capacity. And we'll use both time and heart rate recovery um, as ways to measure that. But in general, yeah, I'm trying to personalize, you know, in a group setting, what's the correct volume intensity. So think of it like this. It's like I, I like to use strength training because it's just a, an easier uh, way to look at things from a comparative standpoint. You know, if I have 100 people, uh, they're all going to have different strength levels. And some people might need to do heavier weights and some people might need to do uh, lower lower intensities with more volume depending on what they're trying to accomplish and where they're at. It's the same thing with conditioning. Some people uh, might need to spend more time at higher heart rates and have more intensity and, and have longer rest periods. And some people might need less intensity or longer rest periods and all those sorts of things. So it's just a way of personalizing and, and making uh, the conditioning process, energy system process a bit more um, you know, scientific and a bit more granular than just like you said, the kind of old school approach of let's, let's just go sprint for 30 seconds and rest for 10 seconds and repeat that over and over again. That's just like saying, let's have everyone do three sets of eight. I mean, it's the same thing. Like 
It's just like using one method. Oh, everyone should just do three sets of eight. That's our strength program. Well, that's probably mm-hmm. not a very good strength program to have every single person do one thing. So when I approach conditioning, you know, I just have a, I have 10, 12 different methods I use that are different intensities and different volumes. So that means different heart rates and different rest periods. And then we try to individualize that as much as possible within the team setting to make it, you know, within practical limits. Uh, we, we try to make sure that the person's getting what they need the same way we would in the strength side. Well, generally speaking, I, I can make an argument that way more effort goes into individualizing the, the, the strength training program. For instance, I was way more familiar with APRE, you know, auto-progressive, auto-regulating loading uh, in the weight room before you know, I heard anything about conditioning the way you're talking about it. So uh, what are the downfalls of a coach, um, of a program that would overlook individualizing the conditioning aspect of a training program? Yeah, I mean, look, it's the exact same thing that you expect to be downfalls if you have them doing everybody in the program strength train doing, you know, three sets, eight. Some people are going to progress really well from that, and some people aren't. So if we put everybody through the exact same conditioning program, it's going to be enough stress for some people, it's going to be too much for some people, and not enough for other people. So the funny thing is, if you look at most research that comes out in either strength or conditioning, whatever you're looking at, we, we always see the net result, like, oh, you know, this group of 18 people saw a 22% increase in their one rep max, or they saw a 20% decrease in their time to, you know, whatever, exhaustion or increase, whatever. So the problem is that gives us the idea that the group itself saw that. But if you actually read most of the re- these research papers, you'll see that the results were a bell curve. Like you'll see some people in the group got jack shit, nothing happened. Some people got negative results or no results or, you know, moderate. And then some people got great results. So we tend to think that like these protocols that we use, you know, are going to be uniform in that they're in their how people respond to them, but that's just not reality. And again, the research itself shows that, like the, the Tabata research that everybody loves. Like there were people in the Tabata group that saw nothing, like no gains, and then there were some that saw great gains, and then there were some that saw negative improvements in some cases. So we just have to understand that people are individuals, and a lot of it is what I've just mentioned, you know. People have different levels of sleep and people recover differently based on all the things they're doing outside the gym. So we can't expect everybody to need the same dose and we can't expect everybody to perform the same. So if I put every single person in the gym under this exact same strength program, some people are going to perform well, some people aren't. And it's the same thing on the conditioning side. If I put every single person on the team under the exact same sets and reps and intensities and just did this hit program for every single person, that might be what some people need, but it's probably not going to be what a lot of people need. So you just want to try to personalize things to give people what's going to give them the most uh, the most beneficial effect. And it's hard. Don't get me wrong. Like you said, strength training has become a much bigger piece of, of what people try to manipulate and organize training around. And then conditioning has kind of been an afterthought for a lot of coaches over the years. And it's kind of like, oh, we're going to do, we're going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to dive into this periodization model. I'm going to do this West Side method, or I'm going to do triphasic. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Like they'll spend hours debating all the periodization around the strength trends inside and then when it comes to conditioning they're like okay we're going to do you know five minute intervals at the end of every session like there's it's just kind of this, this the bastard stepchild of like training because yeah. it's it's more complicated in some ways because there's more moving pieces to it but it's it's just as important and often it's it's more important i can tell you i've seen more team sports more combat athletes you know a lot of athletes in general that the wins and losses are more related to their ability to maintain their performance through all four quarters or to the end of the competition than it is strength. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to downplay strength. Strength and power and speed are hugely important. I don't want to yeah, say you, otherwise. Yeah, you, you might upset a lot of strength coaches out there. Strength is king. Yeah. You don't want to make them mad. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I started out in strength, right? My my, my first gig was at uh, University of Washington with Bo Gillespie, who was one of the strongest humans out there and mm-hmm. on the football side and the CLC Hawks. So strength is where I started my whole career. 
Um, and I don't want to downplay the importance of strength and speed and power because those are usually important parts of performance. Um, but I can just tell you that a lot of teams' wins or losses come in the fourth quarter, right? We all know that. Uh, combat athletes, they their their wins or losses come at the 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 expense of conditioning all the time. So we just have to understand that you, if you're putting all, all I would say there is it, look at how much time you're spending debating sets and reps and exercises and volumes, intensities and periodization and strength side. And if 90% of your thought processes and energy is being devoted to that and only 10% of it is on the conditioning side, you're probably not looking at the big picture of performance because really conditioning is just a measure and expression of how long you can maintain your strength and power and speed. That's what it is. I mean, by definition, when we're talking about conditioning, we're talking about the ability to maintain your speed from start to finish or to maintain your explosive power from start to finish. So all the strength and power and speed don't do any good unless you can actually maintain them and use them throughout the competition, right? Throughout the game, throughout the match, throughout the whatever. And that's what conditioning is. Conditioning is basically just saying, okay, it's great that you can lift X pounds one rep, but a competition is not one rep. It's, you know, four quarters or it's three, five minute rounds or it's, you know, whatever it is. So conditioning is really, if you look at it, it's just a, a the ability to maintain that strength, speed, and power across the competition. So that's, you know, it's an easier way for coaches to understand this. Look, this is really, really important because it's not a one rep max competition unless you're a power lifter. Yeah. Funny story about Bill Gillespie. When I was in high school, I went to a football camp at Liberty University, which I think is oh, yeah. that's where he was at the time. And, yeah, um, you know, we're just, we're, we're, we're little idiots, you know, high school kids and they bring us in the weight room and Bill Gillespie. I think he gives us like a two hour, just like brain dump. I mean, he really dumped it <laughs> on us. Um, yep. And I was like, I, I was looking around. And I was like, dude, I'll, you know, none of us are going to take away anything from this. This is too much. It's like a college lecture. Um, so at the end, he was like, any questions? And I actually rose my hand. And I was like, you know, after everything you just told us, like, what's the one takeaway we can bring home with us? that will make the most difference. And he told us, he said, cut out sugar. He said, don't eat sugar. That's what he told us <laughs> at the end of that two hour spiel. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. You know, what's ironic is so when I was in high school, same thing happened to me. Uh, Bill was at the University of Washington. Uh, I was a senior senior at high school, and Bill came to my high school and did the same thing. He and he gives this huge like I don't know if it's two hours, but it was a long brain dump. And at the end of it, he he handed us a, a program kind of based on what University of Washington was doing. And at the time, you know, I was seventeen or eighteen or whatever it was. My whole idea of of strength training was bodybuilding, right? It was like chest, back, arms, legs. Like that was my idea of training for football, and I didn't know any better. And then Bill handed this program. It was like a university level strength conditioning program. I looked at it, and I was like what the hell is this? Like, I don't understand the split. Like it didn't make any sense to me. It was so foreign to have like every day he's got some leg work in here. Like there's like, what, like where's the biceps, right? It just, <laughs> it was so, it was such a different take on a, a way to organize training that I was, it was kind of my first introduction to be honest with you into mm -hmm. strength and conditioning versus bodybuilding as a way to train. Like I just, it never occurred to me that training to play football was going to have a, such a different structure to it than, you know, what I was reading all the bodybuilding magazines. And so it was kind of funny that it was really, really Bill was the first person to say, Oh, look, here's a college drink conditioning program. And I just looked at that thing in amazement. I'm like, Holy shit. Like this is a whole new world. And so when I was at the university of Washington um, and I, I basically just reached out to Bill and I, I played there briefly as a freshman and said, Hey, I've really got become interested in conditioning. And here's all the people I was reading a lot of Russian artists, uh, Russian uh, authors back then and uh, straight super training and, and basically just kind of met, reached out to Bill and said, Hey, I'm a young guy. I'm really digging into strength conditioning. I want to become a strength conditioning coach. And I, you know, I, I learned a lot from you as, as a senior in high school and a and freshman on the team. Bill basically said, come on down and, and welcome me with open arms. 
And, uh, you know, we just would chat for hours on end about different training principles and strength methods. And we'd come up with ideas to try in the gym because Ben Bill was always just trying to improve his bench. And we'd try different things. I'd, I'd come up with ideas based on stuff I was reading. And, you know, it was just this laboratory of trying new things to get Bill stronger. So we could bench an extra 10 or 20, 50 pounds, whatever it was back then. I worked out with Bill every day for, for years. And, um, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity. I've always kind of looked at that as, is something to aspire to. I mean, Bill had been in the profession at that point for, I don't know, half his life. And he was a strength coach at a university that finished, I think, second or third in the nation. And here I was, just this, you know, 21-year-old kid that was coming down. He was willing to listen to my ideas and he was willing to put them in his own training. And he was willing to, you know, treat me as, uh, you know, someone who was valuable. And, and he was he was open to that. And, and I think a lot of coaches would never do that. You know, like, who's this kid? He's half my age. He has no shit. You know, you wouldn't be open to to thinking that way, but, but Bill was always open to trying new things and he would, he would listen to anybody and have discussion with anybody. And he was always very open. And, and I, and I was really thankful for that. And it's something I've always tried to keep in mind is, you know, my experience and, and knowledge over the years has gained. Like you, you never know at all. There's always somebody out there who's going to have some new ideas that might be fantastic. And you can never be closed off the idea that somebody less experienced than you uh, might not actually know something that you don't, that might not have some value to offer you. So um, yeah. just a kind of a side note for coaches listening, you know, don't, don't be afraid to listen to the interns because sometimes, you know, they might be the smartest guy in the room. They might be the next Joel Jameson. You never know. Yeah. I mean, like, so you just, <laughs> you just, you never know what someone's, what someone can come up with. And, you know, it was, it was really cool experience to be able to work with Bill from very early on, but like I said, it taught me the strength side above all else. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I never in a million years would have thought I would become the guy known for conditioning because back then I knew next to nothing about conditioning. I was obsessed with strength and you know, lifting with Bill and getting stronger. It wasn't until I opened up a gym where I started training combat athletes that I suddenly realized I don't know anything about conditioning because I just went over the mm -hmm. I went to the combat I went over the combat gym and got my ass handed to me in 30 seconds, this fight being massively stronger than them. I mean, I, I was I was sparring with this guy, rolling this guy, uh, Ivan Salivary. He couldn't do two pull-ups, you know, and I was doing pull-ups with 45 pound weights around my uh, 45, you know, 90 pound plates around my waist. And I could I was so much stronger than him that had this misconception that it would actually mean something once you start grappling. And it, it just didn't mean much more than 30 seconds and it was done. Yeah. Well, let's take MMA for instance, you know, the, the eye test, some of the best fighters don't wouldn't pass your eye test. You wouldn't pass them on the street and think this person can kill you. Um, but no, my, my no guess way. would be right. But my, my guess is how much of a drop off in power is there from a professional MMA fighter and the first seconds of the first round versus the final seconds of the very last round. Um, is that really what makes the difference between a, like a professional MMA fighter in terms of conditioning? Is, is their ability to maintain power throughout a, throughout a fight? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the, the biggest things is their ability to maintain their explosive power from start to finish and their uh, knowing their, their understanding of when to use the energy they have. So that's, that's the biggest difference is twofold. Like, number one, they have a much greater level of fitness and technical skills. So they're more efficient with everything. But two, they just know how to to, to pace themselves. They know when to use energy and when not to. So you take the average, you know, average MMA guy, let's say, let's say a pro, even a, you know, someone who's just getting the UFC, a lot of times they'll, they have decent levels of fitness. I mean, if you were to test them, you know, test their VO2 max and you were to test their thresholds, their lactate thresholds, they look like they're in pretty good shape, but they'll go in the octagon and they just will have no idea how to pace themselves and they'll burn themselves out in 30 seconds and they'll gas out and they'll lose the fight. So mm -hmm. we, we just have to understand it's, it's like, let's say, Let's say I want to prepare you for a marathon. Like, would you sprint the first hundred meters like a hundred meter sprinter if you knew you were going to run a marathon? Like, no, you wouldn't because you know you have to finish a marathon, right? But the problem is, guys get in the octagon, and even though the the fight can be three five minute rounds or five five minute rounds, they'll sprint like a sprinter. 
and they'll gas themselves out, even though their fitness level might be high enough to finish that marathon. If they sprint mm-hmm. too fast, too hard in the wrong times, you're going to gas yourself out. There's, there's no way to go hundred percent for five, five minute rounds. You can't do it. Your physiology, physiology just cannot support that. It's like saying I'm going to sprint a mile at the same speed. I could sprint hundred meters. You can't do it, right? It's not possible. So a lot of MMA is about understanding and pacing and working and managing energy effectively. So that's just one of the things you have to develop with them is you, you, you have to develop both the fitness side, which is like I said, the measurables and the conditioning side, which is your ability to then use that fitness, apply that fitness in a way that uh, helps you win the fight. Is there like an adrenal component to, to fighting and sport in general, where when you're in live competition, you, your nerve, does your nervous system deplete energy at a faster rate being in live competition versus like sparring or in the practice? Yeah, so we can, we can actually tie this back into HRV. So you remember the two systems I talked about, the sympathetic fight or flight and the parasympathetic rest and digest. That sympathetic system we talked about that turns up energy production is mm-hmm. controllable through our mental uh, faculties, our mental processes. So if I sit here and think about something very stressful, I crank up my heart rate, right? I mean, I can think about something I'm scared of or I'm thinking I'm nervous about, my heart rate goes up. So a lot of the way our body's sympathetic system works is not just the energetic demands of punching and kicking, but also our mental uh, anxiety and stress on that. So if you're extremely tight and you're extremely mentally stressed and you're, you know, in that moment, your body's pumping out adrenaline, you're cranking up your heart rate, meaning you're, you're, yeah, you're expending more energy at a given point in time, your calorie, your caloric expenditure, your energy production goes way up and thus you fatigue a lot faster because of that. You're just burning more energy than you have to. You're more inefficient than you, than you could or be or should be. And so you end up spending a lot more energy in the same period of time. Boom, you gas out. Mm. Damn. And it's hard to replicate that in training. I mean, do you take that yeah. into consideration during training? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you have to. I mean, there's, there's, so for example, you can blast music into the, into the octagon, in the training. You can have everybody stand around and watching the person spar and, and have more eyes on them. Uh, you can do things like that, start to crank up the, you know, some of the aspects of it. And then some of it, some of it does just come from experience. You know, the more time you go in the octagon, you go into a fight, you know, the better you start to deal with that. But yeah, you want to try to replicate some of those areas in training as much as you possibly can. So you can get the person used to the feeling of walking in the ring, walking, like have their walkout. Like a lot of times you can have their walkout song playing because a lot of times that mental thing of hearing the walkout song as they're walking mm-hmm. in the octagon is kind of that mental trigger. And if they're mm-hmm. not a good, they're not good at controlling that, like the, the adrenaline dump will start there. It'll, it'll start even the locker room before the fight, right? They're, they're nervous all day long and they have all that energy and that adrenaline just pours out of them as soon as they start walking into the, the ring or octagon. So you, you absolutely want to start replicating some of those things in practice and just making them aware consciously of, uh, you know, what their adrenaline is doing and how their nerves are feeling and starting teaching them techniques to, to control those things more effectively and be better. At. And that's, that's honestly where we use heart rate a lot. So mm-hmm. heart rate is the best indicator of that, right? So if normally if I'm walking down the street, my heart rate, let's say 120. Well, if I'm shooting full of adrenaline, it might be 150, 160. You know, you're you're going to be way more than you need to be. And so we can use that in training. We can teach them how to control their heart rate in training as they're warming up, as they're preparing for the fight, as they're sparring. Um, so we use a lot of heart rate for that purpose of, of showing them where they're at and helping them control that mentally. So if they see their heart rate spiking, even though they're not working it hard, it's obviously an indication that their sympathetic system is just overworking and, and they need to be able to control that more effectively. So I call that the energy control, really it's dynamic energy control. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's another use for heart rate is just you know, showing them where they're at and giving them the, the ability to control it more effectively than just kind of letting them go wherever they want. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we're, we're going to move on from MMA, but we should probably have another podcast where we talk about, you know, just fighting combat sports in general. I think we get a lot of white males on this podcast listening if we talk about that. <laughs> um, but we're, we're going we're gonna to move on here to, to inflammation again. I'll premise this by saying, again, I'm a smooth brain idiot. I'm just going to you know, bring this up and then you can kind of take over. But inflammation, I kind of get the sense that it's, it's kind of a loaded term and it's a very broad term. For instance, my wife goes to a functional doctor and she'll talk about inflammation of the gut. You hear about people talking about inflammation being behind, you know, breakouts in your skin or your face. I mean, inflammation, this, this is brought up in the health and fitness and wellness world, like all over. But you talk about inflammation and, and how it's overlooked to some degree. Um, how do you think about inflammation, you know, how it comes about, what it means exactly? And then, you know, what is our, uh, you know, like, what is our call to address inflammation? Yeah, so I mean, it's a big topic. I think the the, the nervous system, uh, sorry, the, the immune system, which is actually connected to the immune system, nervous system, uh, is is overlooked in the terms of just how it functions within our training. So, as a broad topic, inflammation is just the immune system doing its job. So, if I tear a muscle or I stress a tissue or whatever, it's my immune system's job to repair that. So, it's part of the recovery process. It's part of making something bigger. And inflammation is basically just part of the signaling that the immune system says, hey, there's there's some stressed tissue here, some damaged tissue. We need to do something about this. We need to repair it. And so it's part of the recovery process, right? So if I train, I stress tissue, there's inflammation that's occurring at that site, and that starts the body's repair and regeneration. It says, hey, these tissues need repair. So inflammation in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a signal. And it's a signal that says this tissue needs, needs repair. It's, it's damaged. It's stressed. We need to do something about this, and what we need to do about it is repair it and fix it. So we talk about inflammation; it's, it's that's all it is. Okay, it's it's a signaling mechanism for the brain, the body to coordinate responses so that it it fixes whatever it is that's the stressed and damaged, and that's a good thing in the short run. But what happens is if something is chronically inflamed, in other words, it's always we we always see it in this hey I'm I'm broken state. It means it's not getting repaired. It means something's causing this to be chronically. Uh, broken and chronically stressed and it's never getting the repairs that it needs so what we see is basically this process of when we are training we are producing inflammation because we're stressing tissues and that is a sympathetically driven process so when the sympathetic system is producing lots of energy we are inherently more in a pro-inflammatory state meaning we're more likely to produce inflammation because we're more likely to stress tissues Does that makes sense so I'm more likely to obviously cause muscle stress and muscle damage as I'm training than if I'm just sitting here doing nothing. So the higher my sympathetic system is, the more likely I am to be able to produce inflammation. The more inflammation is going to be produced because I'm stressing more tissue. Now, the parasympathetic system, the other half of that, is what turns off that inflammation and it, because it repairs that tissue. So what should happen in the ideal world is you produce inflammation to say, hey, this muscle tissue is stressed, and then the parasympathetic system fixes it and turns the inflammation off because it's no longer stressed, right? It's just like a it's just a switch that gets turned on or off. But if we, again, stress our body so much that our parasympathetic system can't repair it, that's how we get chronic inflammation. We basically have this all these signals saying, hey, all this tissue is damaged, but when we don't have the energy we need to repair it, the parasympathetic system can't do its job and can't uh, you know recover all this different tissue, rebuild of tissue, that's where chronic inflammation comes in. And the parasympathetic system can't shut off all the inflammation because it can't keep up with the repairs. And so when, we, when you talk in health professions like, oh, you've got inflammation or you have 
you know, this inflammation, that if, what we're really just saying is these cells and these tissues are chronically being damaged and they're chronically not being recovered or not being re- rebuilt and repaired. So the inflammation's never being shut off. It's just basically telling us that this stress is always there and it's never able to go away because your body's not able to fully heal those tissues or fully repair those tissues in the way that it, it, it should be. So really it's, it's obviously a, a bad thing from this standpoint because it basically just means your, your tissues are in a bad shape all the time and you're, and you're not able to, to fix that problem that's underlying that inflammation. So, uh, you know, from a training standpoint, we just have to understand that training is inflammatory. I mean, because we are stressing tissues and we have to be able to recover from that stress and then see that inflammation go away. If we don't see that inflammation go away, it is a signal to our brain that there's too much stress and the brain mm-hmm. starts to take, take control of that and starts to decrease motivation to go to the gym. It starts to decrease your power output. It starts to make tissues more susceptible to injury. It starts to start pushing you away from training because it's so stressful. So inflammation uh, as a whole is something the brain uses as a way to recognize how much stress the body is under. So if we think about the brain as this master controller, which it is, it has to have information of what's happening inside the body so it can make better decisions about what to do or what not to do. And so inflammation from different points actually goes up to the brain through the nervous system. It's basically something that the brain uses as a uh, just a, a gauge, basically, of how much stress the body is under. If it sees lots of inflammation, then it starts to influence our behaviors. It starts to do things to try to get us to move away from those things that are causing inflammation in the first place. Like like not train again, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. It starts to decrease motivation. I mean, why do you think mm-hmm. people go to the gym January 1st in a normal world and then quit January 30th? Because they overload their body with so much stress, they, they end up producing shit tons of information or inflammation. And ultimately, the body starts saying, what are you doing? This is this is a bad idea. Stop doing that. Mm-hmm. And then, and then they sit there and they watch another Netflix episode instead of going to the gym. It's because subconsciously their brain sensed all this inflammation in the body and tries to get them to move away from those sorts of things. So most inflammation, it's more subtle than just being sore, right? You, you, you might not physically notice inflammation. You might just have the repercussions of your brain telling you to, to move away, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you have, soreness is obviously an extreme uh, you know, level of tissue damage. And it's, it's you know, what happens under extreme exertion. It's part of the game. But yeah, most of the time you don't feel inflammation per se. You know, you might feel a little more tired, a little more fatigued, uh, maybe feel less motivation, maybe feel more hungry. You know, all those sorts of things can drive, are, are you know, can be underlying of the stress that's causing inflammation. So basically, inflammation is a symptom. We put that way. inflammation is not directly the cause. Inflammation is the is the symptom of the underlying stress that your body is not recovering effectively from, and inflammation is a result of that. So that's probably the best way to look at it. And there's all sorts of like, you know, if you go get uh, blood tests, you can look at things like CRP and, and different different uh, inflammatory markers, uh, TNF, alpha, you can look at all sorts of different inflammation things. And sometimes you might, you might feel okay, or you might not feel sore, or you might have an injury, but you'll find that your inflammation levels are higher than they should be, which again, it's, it's usually a side product of not getting enough sleep and having too much crappy food in your diet and being really mentally stressed. So again, Going back to this understanding that mental stress is stress, when we are mentally stressed, we are producing inflammatory signals because our energy production is turned on because that sympathetic system is turned on. So mental stress itself can cause these inflammation processes to happen, not necessarily because these tissues are damaged, but because we are activating that sympathetic nervous system. Like I talked about, that that sympathetic nervous system is inherently going to be more inflammatory or pro-inflammatory versus the parasympathetic system, which is more anti-inflammatory. So does this kind of tie into the, the topic of soft tissue management? Is soft tissue management essentially like external interventions that 
we use like foam rolling and hyper ice to assist our immune system in addressing inflammation? Yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, you're, you're essentially doing a couple of things. You're trying to get pressure in the system to cause a recovery response for more or less. And you're also trying to just facilitate blood flow and lymphatic drainage. And you're trying to stimulate the immune system to facilitate those recovery processes you know, more effectively. That's really what, you know, massage and like you said, trigger point therapy and Theragun and, you know, hyperice, all these things are doing is they're just trying to get the immune system a little extra boost to facilitate that recovery and repair processes happening. But it's, it's big, the big picture, right? It's nutrition, it's sleep, it's being able to deal with mental stress more effectively. It's managing yeah. the volume intensity. Soft tissue management to me, again, if we just look at a, a device and those things are valuable, right? I mean, stem is valuable and hyperice and there all those things can play a role and they can be effective, but it goes back to the big picture. Like those things are just little external stimuli that can help the process. Mm-hmm. But if you're not getting sleep, if you're having too much caffeine and you're always sympathetic, if you're not dealing with mental stress well, and you're always under a lot of mental stress outside of, uh, you know, just in life, if you're doing too much volume and too much intensity every day, like those things can't counteract all those other things adding up. So we always like soft tissue management starts with, all those pieces and the little teeny things that you do is foam rolling and soft tissue strategies can help, but you've got to have the big picture dialed in before those things are really going to do much more than, you know, put a bandaid on it. Yeah. Um, we're coming up on the hour here. So we'll, we'll finish up with my version of asking Bill Gillespie, you know, for the, the one takeaway at the end of long talk. Um, if, if I were to plop you down on like the average high school football field and you were to observe, you know, like a sprint training session, you know, just the average training session. What do you think is the most common mistake that you see, um, you know, say at the high school level or the amateur sport level when it comes to, to conditioning and sprint training? Yeah, look, I think the number one thing I would say is don't mistake fatigue for actual improvements, right? So I think that coaches in general tend to have this idea that I have to make somebody really tired in order to make them get better. So if they, they look at the team and think, okay, I've got to run them. And this, you know, when I was in high school, is the way it was. You would run until you couldn't run anymore half the time. Like it was just a matter of, I want to make you as tired as I possibly could. Because to me, that was, you know, as a coach, you think, well, if, if they're not getting fatigued, they're not gassing out, they're not gassing for air, then they're not getting better. But that's not really what causes the body to get better. It's not just a matter of make them as tired as you possibly can. And then therefore their conditioning is magically improving. So a lot of it is just being more aware that, their conditioning will improve from quality repetitions and from doing the right things, which is rarely just running somebody into the ground. So I would just say this, if you're a, if you're a high school coach, go watch a college coaching session. If you're a college coach, go watch a pro session. The pros are rarely gasping for air in the middle of practice. They get way more rest than a high school athlete because rest is again, a recipe for good quality reps. Your conditioning will improve if you get a lot of good quality reps your conditioning will often not improve if all you do is train under fatigue all the time. You'll probably ultimately get hurt and your conditioning will probably stagnate at some point and your performance will likely be terrible by the end of the, by the end of the, uh, the end of the season. So just be more mindful that really what conditioning and fitness comes down to is getting a lot of really high quality repetitions more than just as many repetitions as possible. So just be, be mindful that the, the, you know, the end of the last five minutes of practice throwing them as hard as you can at the wall and making them, you know, do gassers until they can't run is probably not going to make them better condition. It's probably just going to cause a lot more fatigue. That's going to carry over and make them more likely to get injured. So just, just manage that process more effectively. and You'll end up seeing a lot better results. If you're a, a coach listening to this and you want to see what a training session of high quality reps will look like, uh, 
Joel has a website called eightweeksout.com. You've written a couple of books. There are resources out there that you've written and that's, you share all the secrets, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I tried to. I, I've actually got a course coming out here shortly called Recover to Win. Uh, and the, the whole purpose of Recover to Win is to share these big pieces around movement, training, regeneration, sleep, uh, and help people understand how you put all these pieces together to, to end up with better performance. Because I think as coaches, it's really easy to get laser focused on one of them. You know, I'm going to write the perfect strength training program, or I'm going to focus on this diet for this program. But it's all these pieces coming together that add up to results. If you If you shortchange any one of them, your results are just not going to be the same. So rather than micro laser focusing on like, oh, I've got to do three reps. No way, i got to do four reps. That doesn't matter. It, it's the big picture. It's getting enough sleep. It's eating the right food. It's being able to turn off mental stress. It's being able to train the overall right volume intensities. It's, it's all these things put together that make a huge difference. There's not one little magic detail that anyone's ever come up with that makes a bigger difference than the big picture. So uh, if, you know, if the coaches are in shape, recover to win, I'll have it out in a few weeks. It's just, it's a course, about five hour course on movement, training, activity, sleep, regeneration, all these different things I've talked about. Um, and just really give you a much better idea of, of how to help people put these things together, how to measure them, how to make sure that coaches are your athletes and people you work with are doing the right things so that they're getting the most out of the training with you. And so you can give them uh, the, you know, the best results possible for them. Yeah. Recover to win. You even have a, a component on breathing in there. I believe I heard. Yep, we do have. A, I have a Mike Robertson and Bill Harmon put a piece of breathing in there because it's such a fundamental uh, piece of recovery and, and conditioning as well. As breathing plays such a big role, so I had Mike Robertson go in and, and do a piece on on how to breathe efficiently, how to teach breathing, how to uh, do some breathing drills as part of warm up, cool down, all that sort of stuff. Because uh, the breathing side is actually what ties into the autonomic nervous system, which we can talk about uh, another time. But breathing is a really simple way to do that. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Joel, I gotta say, thank you so much for coming on. We went a little bit over, but. Uh, well worth it. I want to have you back on. Just grateful to have you on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime I appreciate coming on. I always like talking to coaches and people that are looking to uh, put all these pieces together. So anytime, happy to come back on. Excellent. I'll have uh, your resources posted in the show notes. People will have access to that. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to having you back on. Great. Thanks. Uh, looking forward to be back on. Maybe I'll be home. Maybe I'll be in Hawaii, but uh, either way, anytime. Maybe we can swap homes or something and do it from each other. You know. <laughs> there we go. Great. All right. Have a good one, Joel. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Team Builder Podcast. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you would like us to discuss on our format, go ahead and reach out to me. My email is hewitt at teambuilder.com. Thanks again for listening.